Welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. I'm the host of this podcast. As always, the show notes have all of the sources mentioned, as well as all of the ways that you can connect and work with me. Without further ado, on to the show. Today I thought what I would do is talk about this idea that analytical psychology can be a bridge for the Western mind to understand Eastern thought. So if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know at some point along the way in my psychological journey, I got really interested in depth psychology. And this is founded by Freud and Carl Jung. And though they weren't necessarily the founders of a lot of these ideas, they did start bringing them together. And then when you get to Jung, who I'm going to talk about today, he really is, he really did create a lot of the things that we use today, the terms introversion and extroversion, you know, all of these personality typologies were from Jung, the idea of synchronicity. And so he really is looking at how does the metaphysical world and the psychological world connect And I'll talk about it in this paper that I'm going to talk about today. But one of the things that's really interesting about Carl Jung, to my mind, is that he uses this psychological method in order to say, what can we know? And he doesn't close the door on anything metaphysical, which I think is important. It's important to me anyway, because I think that having a, an active and engaged spiritual life is, is one of the things that can make us feel whole. But there are kind of issues with going to other cultures and just simply assimilating their thoughts. And you see some of these issues in movements like spiritualism that kind of were kind of the precursors to the New Age movement, right? With guys like Mesmer and um, the Theosophists, right? All of them take a lot of these... Eastern ideas, and they kind of translate them directly to the West. And without understanding the psyche, there is some danger in that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I also want to say something else, which is I became really aware when I went to seminary that not only is there this superiority around particular images of God, But actually, there's also superiority in this kind of elitism that comes around the way that a text can be interpreted. And so the method used, if you go to, well, if you just go to church in the West today, it's likely that you're going to feel, you're going to find some kind of exegetical method. And exegesis, what it tends to do is take scripture and then try to ask questions like, okay, what, what, what did this mean in the context that it was in? And, and it tries to root all of the things that are happening in the world that it came out of. And that's a, that's a sound way to work with a text that is really far from your culture, but it's not the only way in my estimation. And I think that using a psychological hermeneutic is a much better way to start working with these ideas because 
what you start to find is though psyche is the same as it was in ancient times, the level of consciousness is not, right? The way we view the world, the way we view ourselves within the world is absolutely not the same. We've gone through many revolutions since a lot of these spiritual texts that can be so transformative were created. And so because we didn't come out of the time that they came out of, it can be really helpful to have some kind of hermeneutic method in order to get into the text. Now, the word hermeneutic comes from, well, it comes from the Greek god Hermes, who is the the messenger god. When people would die, um, for example, and then traverse to the underworld. It was always Hermes that would bring them there. And so there's this idea with a hermeneutical method. It's like the way that we interpret it. And what you find is the different ways that you interpret something is real. And not only that, but I would say the level of consciousness that you bring to the interpretation of a text is really going to affect the message that you get. And so... For all of those reasons, I think analytical psychology is a, it's a great way to encounter some of these ancient texts, to make them real for you today, to make them tangible, to make them helpful. And it's also a helpful way to start asking questions when you get to a cultural text that comes from a culture that is not your own. And so the way you view the world, the, the way your psyche is conditioned, you could say, is completely different. So I'm going to draw really heavily today from three different commentaries that Carl Jung wrote. So there's one called The Psychology of Kundalini Yoga, and there's another one called The Secret of the Golden Flower, and then there's another book called The Tibetan Book of the Dead. And Jung essentially created psychological commentaries uh, at the request of these authors in order to help Western people understand them better. And so I wrote a paper in my PhD program about using analytical psychology as a bridge to the East. And so, by the way, I will link all of these books up in the show notes of this episode if you're interested in them. They've been incredible resources in my own life. And I'll just say this one thing, the one Tibetan Book of the Dead, I think that there are some better translations than this one, but I will still link the one that has Carl Jung's commentary in, in it. Um, and again, I think all these books, like I said, have been really, really transformative for me. And so in a letter from Carl Jung to the Indologist uh, Wilhelm Hauer, ahead of a lecture series in 1932 addressing the psychology of kundalini yoga, Jung tells Hauer, I'm aware of the profound congeniality between my view and yoga. Prior to this series in 1929, this congeniality led to a psychological commentary on the secret of the golden flower, translated by Richard Wilhelm, and would later lead to yet another commentary introducing the Tibetan Book of the Dead, ahead of Tibetan scholar Evan Wentz, all of which proceeded from the roots of yogic philosophy. Now, in translating these Eastern systems of thought to the language of psychology, the aim of each of these commentaries had the stated goal of making the text intelligible to the Western mind, a text which, according to Jung, is fraught with considerable difficulty because of the basic differences in psychic orientation from East to West. Now, they, being Eastern symbols, this is a quote from Jung, he said, they are a foreign body in our system, corpus alienum and they inhibit the natural growth and development of our own psychology. This is if we, don't, if we don't know what we're doing when we're going into them. And I should also say that because Eastern spirituality has been so profound for me, 
and helping me connect to source, to the absolute, to God, to whatever your favorite word is. The I found this teaching to be difficult to reckon with because I, well, I want what I want, right? And I, I didn't really want to think about the ways that this could actually be really harmful for me. But what I found in deeply contemplating the ways that this can be harmful for the Western mind, I've I have found this new love for the for the commentaries and also for the works themselves because it's helped me realize. Um, well, I'll talk about some of the fruit of this, but in light of these commentaries and then other subsequent works on myth, the fundamental question guiding well this episode, but this paper that I'm that I'm building this episode off of is: to what degree can Carl Jung's analytical psychology be used? as an interpretive method to aid the Western mind in understanding Eastern mythology. Now, in order to answer this question, I'm going to outline some fundamental concepts necessary for grasping Jung's treatment of myth. And then I'm going to proceed the discussion to address the criticism of analytical psychology as an interpretive method. And then finally end by addressing the difficulty and dangers that the Western mind has in trying to assimilate the Eastern ideas in essence, addressing the question as to why a bridge is needed in the first place. Now, in order to accomplish this end, I will weave the above-mentioned commentaries into various sections of the paper, thereby demonstrating the application of the psychological method to Eastern mythology. A little bit of just kind of academic speak there to, to round out this introduction. But this idea of like, why do we need a bridge? And, and this first part that I'm going to start with of how is it that how is it that we understand myth through psychology, through Jung's method, is going to help us um, kind of or get oriented. Now, let's talk about some fundamental concepts for this psychological interpretation of myth. The overarching idea which provides coherence to Jung's theory of myth is his notion of the collective unconscious. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but there's a sort of personal unconscious, and then there's also a collective unconscious. And so this quote is from Jung. He says, Just as the human body shows a common anatomy over and above all racial differences, so too does the psyche possess a common substratum. I have called the latter the collective unconscious. Now, as a theorist, Jung argues for what is called independent invention, implying that individuals and cultures who have no way of knowing about each other see similar motifs and symbols appear in their mythology because they're all drawing from this same substratum. For Jung, this points to the primary function of mythology, which is psychological in nature. In essence, it is to reveal this unconscious. And this is Jung again. He says, myths are original revelations of the pre-conscious psyche, involuntary statements about unconscious happenings. So what this independent invention means is that, and I think a lot of you know, different theorists and mythologists have picked up on this, is you look around the world and you see that the same motifs are appearing over and over and over. Um, I have one book called The Eternal Doctrine, and it talks about these different motifs. And, and you can look like the cross, for example, was really big in Native American mythology, right? And so you can look at similar motifs and symbols and that they appear in all these different cultures who aren't connected, you know, who weren't connected. And so there's a whole, there's a whole you know, field of comparative religion and mythological studies that I'm really interested in, actually, that tries to show, well, where were the bridges? You know, where did the East influence the West and the West the East? But independent invention, look, independent invention looks at 
where these things are appearing and they're not at all connected. So it's like, how are these things happening in common? Well, that's because all myth is a is sort of proceeding from this collective unconscious in this theory. And so what this means in practice is that the various mythologies of the world can be utilized to make sense of the unconscious contents arising in the dreams, fantasies, and visions of individuals. Jungian scholar Sanu Shamdasani, who he actually edited Jung's red books, and then he also edited um, Jung's work on the psychology of kundalini yoga, says that what would otherwise be seen as the meaningless byproduct of a disease process could be understood as a meaningful symbolic process arising from this unconscious. Now, this, of course, means that the process also works in reverse. Psychology can be used to ground ideas emerging in mythology. It should be noted that Jung did not view mythology as solely psychological, and this is important to understand because a lot of the a lot of the criticism on this method says, well, you're just trying to psychologize this text. He, he's not understanding it as only psychology, but he's limiting his treatments of various myths to the field of psychology so as not to overstep the bounds of his empiricism. So here's a quote talking about this idea. He says, to understand metaphysically is impossible. It can only be done psychologically. I, therefore, strip things of their metaphysical wrappings in order to make them objects of psychology. In this way, I can at least get something comprehensible out of them and can avail myself of it. Moreover, I learned psychological conditions and processes which before were veiled in symbols and out of reach of my understanding. And to my mind, you know, his care in this matter of not overstepping his psychological bounds is what makes him so precise in his psychological assertions. And something else to know about Jung is that at the beginning of his career, he really is an empiricist, like to the nth degree. He will not overstep because he's because he's wanting to he's wanting to bring the scientific method into how can we use this to understand these things. And by the end of his career, he's essentially a full-blown mystic. Like he's had these encounters with God. And there's this one famous interview, um, and I can't remember, I think it was on the BBC, but I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, there's this interview where the guy asks him, you know, at the end of his life, do you believe in God? And he says, do I believe? He said, no, I know. You know, and so he's, he's full-blown mystic by the end of his life. And I think it's important to realize he got there by not trying to overstep his bounds, right? By not trying to believe in things that he couldn't understand, by not trying to overreach his own ability, so to speak. And again, I think this is why the psychological method is so imp important, because what we have in common as humans is psychology, Right? This is the lens. If you're looking at the world, if you're interpreting the world, that is happening through the apparatus that we call psyche. So getting back in here, it's from this collective unconscious that everything in myth proceeds, including two key Jungian terms, archetype and symbol. Archetypes are forms or patterns of reality that emerge from the pre-rational psyche and as such express themselves psychically. Here's another quote from Jung. Among these inherited psychic factors, there is a special class which is not confined either to family or race. These are the universal dispositions of the mind, and they are to be understood as anal analogous to Plato's forms. 
Um, the use of psychological terms such as archetype helps Jung explain, for example, the visions described in the Bardo Todal without having to wade into metaphysical claims about the nature of the experience. Helpful for a Western person who has no real concept of reincarnation, and if they do, likely see it from such an egocentric place that their perspective of it is vastly different than what is referred to in the text. So what, what he's saying here is that these archetypes, that these patterns of reality, they're contentless. They aren't, you know, we, we really tend to identify with archetypes these days, but I think we're missing something in our Western assertion of archetypes. And, you know, Jung goes through pains to try to explain what he's talking about, but he's saying that they're, they are forms, but they're contentless, and we fill them up with content when we come into existence. And so we see the patterns of reality playing themselves out in the forms of archetype. Now, the Bardo Todal that I mentioned in this text, because I said that he uses archetypes to make sense of these visions, come out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's called the Bardo Todal. And in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it kind of describes the passage, and I'll do some in-depth commentaries on that book because it's um, incredible, really. But it shows this passage that takes place from the end of one death to the birth of the next death. And it's a really, oh, there's so many fascinating mysteries around this text. It like was missing for 2000 years and then, um, you know, showed up in the person that wrote it, reincarnated to find it. It's like a really cool um, mythology around it. But the, and it can be quite confronting for a Western person because upon the death, the ego sort of sinks into the unconscious and is, and is essentially... Uh, essentially confronted with their own karmic uh, entanglements. And so they present as wrathful and peaceful deities. And then, of course, the clear light of consciousness, which is like the all, nirvana, God, the opportunity for liberation. And these are to be understood as projections, and we'll get into what that means. But in essence, um, what Jung is saying is that these are archetypes. These are archetypes that you're experiencing. So one thing that unites analytical psychology and yoga so remember, this is what we're the key thing we're talking about is that phenomena are are explained as arising from within the individual. Now, in light of this fact, myth can be properly understood as the projection of archetypes onto the physical world. That's what myth is. This is vastly different than the Western religious understanding, which emphasizes the transcendent aspects of the divine far more than the imminent. The Western person must be careful here not to oversimplify. So as an example taken from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Jung interprets the karmic illusions, is what I was just talking about, that appear in the bardo state. Bardo means in between, as in in between birth. In the bardo state is archetypal projections, but cautions the enlightened European not to dismiss them as something unreal, quote unquote. To understand the use of projection in this sense, one must adopt a dialectic worldview, Real and unreal cannot exist in opposition or the point of the visions will be lost completely. Because psyche is taken to be real, and that is to be the most real, the metaphysical assertions in the Bardo Total are, in the highest degree, psychological. Psyche is not only the condition of all metaphysical reality, it is that reality. It's as if in order to understand this Eastern perspective, a new category must be added to the Western mind beyond both real and imaginative. 
right? Because that's how we look at the world. It's like, well, that's either real or it's imagination. But but in order to really understand what these Eastern texts are saying, and especially the Tibetan Book of the Dead, right? Well, actually, no, all of them. I take that back, all of them, because they're all asserting that psyche is the highest reality. Now, the, the new category of understanding for us to try to understand this includes and supersedes both real and imaginative in ontological reality, meaning it is ultimate in nature. Okay, so here we see a major difference between East, Western and Eastern thought. And this is a quote from Jung. For the Western mind, the metaphysical is purely abstraction. For example, to the Indian, the Brahman or Purusa, these are words for uh, God, by, what, by the way, spirit, is the one unquestioned reality. But to us, it's the final result of extremely bold speculation. So to understand this, this God, this God imminent, not transcendent, right? Not God out there somewhere, right? I mean, omnipresence means both, but not God out there somewhere, but also God in here somewhere, that's what's real about you. And that is taken as the baseline understanding for Eastern mythologies, is that God is real and some way imminent in you. And your job here is to free yourself from the entanglements that keep you from knowing that. So such ambiguity is not welcomed by Western theology or philosophy. Hence the power of using this me method to show where our own limited conceptions reach their end in helping us understand the East. Now this gap in understanding is magnified by the fact that because of their emphasis on imminence, right, God within, the East has been mapping out the unconscious far longer than the West. Jung came to understand yoga as a natural process of introversion. And by the way, I don't mean just the yoga that we have in the West. I mean yoga as, the, as philosophy, right? Yogic psychology. And the thing about yogic psychology is that it's, it's, these are people that have been going internal, right? Not prioritizing success in the world, but trying to figure out what it means to find truth within for 2,500 years. So the yogic systems are, of thought are really complex, and they're also complete, you know, so in the West, our, we're coming up with Western or we're coming up with psychological ideas and theories constantly, right? But they have, but that's not how the East is. There's a complete system that maps from you all the way to the transcendent, all the way to God. So because of this, I think a Westerner is likely to feel confused and turned around when first exploring the ideas. Now, let's talk a little bit about the idea of symbols, Symbols for Jung, right? The cross is a symbol in Western, uh, uh, what you'd call Occidental mythology. Symbols for Jung unite the individual with the unconscious because they have a conscious aspect, right? This is what you can see, the image itself, while coming and representing the unconscious, coming from the unconscious. So they're often known to elicit a quote-unquote magic effect. This is using sort of ancient primitive language because through primitive analogy, they speak to the unconscious. And what that means is that symbols have a transformative effect on the consciousness of the individual that's working with them. This is Young again. He said, the word symbol comes from the Greek word uh, symboline, to throw together. It has to do with a heap of things thrown together, which we take as a whole. We can view them as something viewed as a totality or as the vision of things brought into the whole. 
Now, this idea approximates the Western philosophical idea of a gestalt, right? This gestalt is the totality. This means also that symbols cannot be grasped in their entirety by the conceptual mind because by definition, they reach into the world that lies beyond the outer limits of the conceptual mind, right? This is unconscious, what you don't know. And this is also why I think a great definition of God is um, by definition, what you don't know, because it's the unconscious. And you can be conscious of aspects of it, but not all of it in its totality, because you are finite in your conceptual lens and your ability to navigate the world, to think of things you don't, you're not omniscient, right? You don't have knowledge of all. So rather, they can be partially interpreted and followed into the unconscious. Now, this following in symbols is made possible by tracking the dynamic movement of libido, this is life force, this is vitality, this is will, which is represented and contained in the symbol. Hence, Jung's assertion that the unconscious can only be reached and expressed by the symbol, which is the reason why the process of individuation, now individuation means kind of becoming who you're here to be, becoming, um, yeah, becoming whole, becoming who you're here to be, can never do without the symbol. The symbol is, on the one hand, the primitive expression of the unconscious, while on the other hand, it's an idea corresponding to the highest intuition produced by consciousness. This highest intuition is the innate urge to produce an individual as complete as possible. Now that is, we all possess in us from birth the urge to become who we really are. And this perspective on the symbols of mythology and their movement is helping in illuminating Eastern ideas such as Kundalini chakra system, which is made up entirely of symbols. And yes, in essence, Jung understands Kundalini as an effort to give a comprehensive symbolic theory of the psyche. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that when you take religious symbols, again, the cross is one of them, right? When you look at the cross, you can understand that it is... Uh, bringing together heaven and earth, right? That it's bringing the horizontal, the physical plane, and the vertical, the spiritual axis. So it's the meeting point of the physical and the spiritual, right? And so by interpreting the symbols, what you do is you start to try to figure out what's the energy, where's it flowing? Because it's, it's flowing, you can follow it into the unconscious. You can get a deeper understanding of God, of religion, of spirituality through symbol. So... I'm going to talk a little bit about criticism here, and I only have a paragraph on this. But in order to understand the critique leveled against Jung, a continuation of his interpretation of Kundalini is necessary. Shamdasani, this editor of Jung, wrote that the symbolism of the chakra enabled Jung to develop an archetypal regional topography of the psyche and to provide narration of the process of individuation in terms of the imaginal transit between these regions. Basically saying he looked at the chakra system and realized, whoa, this is a map. This is a map of the psyche of how to individuate and actually even goes beyond there. But Jung doesn't, because like I said in the beginning, he doesn't he he doesn't go beyond. He you can, but for these interpretations, for understanding the psychol the psychological structure underlying the myth, we don't want to go beyond the psyche because then, then we're making shit up, right? So each chakra is indicative, in, indicative of different levels of consciousness ascending upward toward individuation. We see here that Jung younger, understood Kundalini partly in terms of his own individuation myth. And maybe I'll do an episode on that. I talk a little bit about it in my lecture series on transformation. 
um, which completed itself at the level of the heart, right? That's the chakra known as anahata. For Jung, to speculate on the levels of consciousness beyond this level was to wade into what reality might be like beyond the three-dimensional experience of everyday consciousness. A superfluous project considering that those who have not traversed this psychic terrain have no idea, and that means is literally no concept of, what it might be like. So Kundalini itself then represents the impulse to individuate, which arises from the unconscious. To activate the unconscious, this is a quote from Jung, to activate the unconscious means to awaken the divine, the Devi, which is like the female goddess Kundalini, to begin the development of the suprapersonal within the individual in order to kindle the light of the gods. And so uh, Harold Coward, and this is actually going to be important because I want to talk a little bit about what's coming up here. This guy, Harold Coward, said he's an opponent of analytical psychology as a valid method for interpreting Kundalini. He offered a pretty scathing criticism. He says it's doubtful that Jung's rope trick of standing Kundalini on its head, I'll talk about why, why that is, and then lopping off the last two chakras, remember going beyond what the psyche is capable of, as superfluous speculations with no practical practical value would be accepted. So for Coward, the series did little more than provide additional insight into Jung's theory of individuation, but taught nothing of the actual system of Kundalini. And by the way, Jung's not trying to teach Kundalini. He's trying to teach the psychic structure that's underlying it so that you don't go into it mistaken, right? Being mistaken by what you're seeing. And we'll talk about again at the end why this bridge is necessary, this psychological bridge. And I guess I should probably say that I know that there's a lot of concepts in here that are difficult to work with and perhaps um, confusing and perhaps frustrating. I, I don't know what, what you're going through because I've been contemplating and working with this material for so long. But I do want to say that if you just allow it, you know, don't feel like you have to understand it. And by the way, I'll post this um, essay, Analytical Psychology as a Bridge to the East on rickalexander.com. So if you want to like print it out and work with it. And then as I said, all the resources that I'm pulling from, I'll also put in the show notes. And so anyway, I say all of that to say that like, it's still incredibly rewarding if you just allow, you know, just allow this content to sink in because you don't have to understand it all. But as different connections come together, it really does um, offer a light for navigation. So similar critiques are often brought up against those who use a hermeneutic that has not been approved by tradition. Biblical scholars, as an example, often complain that the text is, and this is what we're talking about at the beginning, psychologized with this method, preferring instead to stick with typical exegesis, which seeks to situate the meaning of the text and the context that it emerges out of. The weariness of quote-unquote universalizing a text is often the byproduct of those who have a vested interest in a particular meaning or interpretation. That's what I found, right? So if you, if you, if you're, let's say, how would I say this? If your religion, I don't mean your religion, but like your, the, the thing you're following says, no, there's only one way to read this and there's only one acceptable name for God and there's only one acceptable way to get there. Well, then if you start to say, well, like, what about all these other mythologies that have very similar ideas? It's like that has to be rejected because that goes against the doctrine in the first place, you see? So I think this is a lot of the criticism is people are 
I don't want to say insecure, but there's a, there's a certain insecurity. I, I don't necessarily mean that pejoratively, but there's a certain insecurity around, around allowing other interpretive methods and, and realizing that other people have had very similar ideas and that maybe those other ideas are helpful for other people. Anyway, it's not clear that contextual meaning cannot sit by side a psychological meaning. Their ideas are not competing. Right? And this is important. Analytical psychology as a method of interpretation seeks to illuminate the psychic structures that give rise to the phenomena in question. That not only has a therapeutic benefit, as earlier discussed, but also helps those who approach tradition from the outside, which is virtually every single person today who seeks to contemplate ancient wisdom. That helps them assimilate these teachings. And further, it helps them to see where their own frame of reference must be reconfigured in order to grasp the wisdom being conveyed. And I just want to say one thing about this therapeutic idea behind these mythologies, because what, what I'm talking about there, and you know, I'm in my own analysis, I do psychoanalysis weekly, and I find it as a really helpful um, part of the spiritual path. And you know, you have dreams and these dreams, because they're also proceeding from the unconscious, are going to have very similar symbols. They're going to have very similar motifs. And so what you can do is you can take the symbols from your personal fantasies, your personal dreams, these things that are arising from you and you don't know from where, and you can illuminate them and you can amplify them and look for them in other, sim other cultures. And you can look at them, uh, look for them in mythologies. And then you can start to understand the language that the unconscious is speaking, because that's what your dreams are. You know, you often hear someone say something like, oh, I had a dream about you last night. But it's like, no, you didn't. You had a dream about yourself and you used my face because that's what you know. And so, yeah, there's a, I don't want to get into dream analysis, but it's a really interesting thing. And it's, it can be really, really therapeutic in my experience. So let's talk about some differences between Eastern and Western thought, because now we're getting into the crux of why we need something like psychology to make sense of these things. In examining the differences between Eastern and Western philosophical perspectives, the real value of the analytical psychological method is illuminated. For in its absence, the differences remain unconscious and affect our actions without our knowing. In this case, it's as if our ego is possessed and gripped from behind, but by what we do not know. If we do not try, here's another quote, if we do not try hard and dare to commit many errors in assimilating to our Western mentality, we simply get poisoned. For these symbols have a terrible clinging tendency. They catch the unconscious somehow and they cling to us. Now, the difference in orientation is glaring when one considers the starting point of Western thought with that of the East. As an example, we'll consider Indian orientation because actually what I'm finding is Indian, you know, Chinese, Taoism, Confucianism, they're different. So we can't just say East because the different, um, the different mythologies, they have different psyches, you know, different psychic structures. That's wrong. Same psychic structures, different orientation. So as an example, we'll consider East, the Indian orientation. And I'm going to stick with the chakras the, because I think that's, that's the way in. Whereas the Westerner thinks in terms of ego first, and this has to be understood, because this, to my mind, is where some of the New Age goes wrong and also some of the theosophists. 
where the Westerner thinks in terms of ego first and then progresses upward, the Hindu, Hindu thinks from the general first and then progresses down to the individual ego. This point shows a difficulty in looking at the chakra system without any inclination as to its psychological meaning. So the East, and India especially, has always tried to understand the psyche as a whole. Because it has an intuition of the whole, it sees the ego and consciousness as a more or less unessential parts of the whole. That's a feat quite difficult for the West, whose understanding of reality is always in relation to the ego. Thus, because the Western preoccupation with the foreground of the psyche, symbols that represent the background, such as the chakra symbol, or the totality beyond the ego, what you would call the self in Jungian terminology, self with a capital S, we run the risk of identifying the symbolism with only the foreground and trying to inflate it to the size of the whole. This is the poison that Jung often refers to when trying to assimilate Eastern ideas to the Western mind. See, Kundalini is the rising of the impersonal, and thus it should not be considered personal development. And so here's, here's what we... Let me use this one more quote. This is actually by one of my professors. He said he, meaning Young, explains that what takes place in impersonal, what takes place is impersonal and must be observed from a stance of detachment. Now, if this point is not understood, it is increasingly likely, and it's back to my writing again, that the ego is going to identify with what it finds in the unconscious and then will succumb to ego inflation. Such a person person will see themselves as, as that which is rising rather than as a part of the whole. When a person is lifted, here's a young quote, they're likely to be put down in a most disagreeable way. It is wise not to identify with these experiences, but to handle them as if they were outside the human realm. Now, what I'm talking about here is that you know, in the ego, think about in the West how our only idea of psychology is the mind, the brain even, right? We don't have an idea that there's a, I mean, we talk about the unconscious and you hear people talk about soul, but religion, me and Danielle just did a whole episode on spiritual materialism. Religion has become personal development, but it's literally impersonal. It, it, it's not about you. And so because the East, they look at the psyche as a whole, they see the I, right? The I that you think of when you say I, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm this, the ego as a very small part of the whole, not the whole. And so they stay in right relationship to these other things. But because we have no concept of that, we identify with what we find, and then we become inflated. And, and that concept has taken me forever to really understand and sit with, but it is so important because it happens so often. And that's why I think sometimes you see, um, I, I was actually just reading up on some new age philosophy and I was seeing that like there were certain philosophers that called it um, like essentially spiritual narcissism. Well, that's what's happening. It's that there's no idea of the you outside of you. And so it's very hard to not make it all about you. And, and so in the East, that's just not how it is. There's this idea that what you are is far bigger than what you know. Now, psychological, psychologically speaking, you can approach the unconscious in only the right way, namely by a purified mind, by a right attitude, and by the grace of heaven. Now, purity in this sense is analogous to detachment, while the right attitude is one that is grounded in humility. Together, these help keep the spiritual aspirant from 
falling into what's called participation mystique. It's a term coined by the French scholar uh, Levi Brule that refers to the inability to differentiate between subject and object. Insofar as the differences between subject and object is not conscious, unconscious identity prevails. You're gripped by something and you don't know it. So Jung posits the idea that psychologically speaking, the chakra system cannot be understood in its normal bottom-up perspective by the Western mind. Consider the movement from the root chakra to the second chakra. Now the former, the root chakra, is representative of the earth and thus normal everyday life where the ego believes itself to be supreme. In this state, the gods are asleep. The latter is indicative of the unconscious, this is the second chakra, and it's represented by water. So here we find the symbolism of the baptismal font, which initiates a person into the unconscious, right, into the spiritual realm and the ancient mystery cults. So just note that they have the unconscious above, but we have it below, right? Everything is just the opposite. Herein lies the danger of not grasping the psychological structure underlying Hindu thought. For us, we experience this movement into the unconscious as a sinking below, right? But in the chakra system of development, it's an upward movement. In The Secret of the Golden Flower Commentary, Jung makes the point that Western consciousness is by no means consciousness in general, but rather historically conditioned and geographically limited, representative of only one part of humanity. Thus, the comparisons are not as straightforward as they might seem. It's really only in applying the analytical psychological method, however, that these differences become apparent. And here's, you're about to find out why. In the Western mind, we tend to view consciousness as coming from the Ajna chakra, right? This is in the head. This, however, is the space that only enlightened masters have reached according to the movement of Kundalini. Thus, because we experience consciousness in the head, we see ourselves as enthroned, dominant over nature. Our identification with consciousness means we talk about the subconscious, right? Below conscious. And we fall down into Manipura. That's our emotional center, which is like the what, third chakra. A sort of built-in fear of sinking downward cuts us off from the wisdom of the body, which lives below the level of the emotions. So in societies heavily influenced by Puritan values, ours, for example, the body, like animals, is considered unholy. The profundity of this should not be lost because the movement of psyche, according to the sh um, chakra symbolism, must begin in a place that is utterly, utterly unacceptable to Western sensibility. Thus, not only is there a danger of inflation, but there also exists a danger of simply bypassing the necessary steps needed for the holistic expansion of consciousness toward individuation. In this case, one is not transcending their current consciousness, but they're fragmenting, right? They're just becoming different. They're identifying with something else. So in order to keep from this, we must remember, and here's a young quote, that the step to higher consciousness leads away from all shelter and safety. And further, the new thing contradicts deeply rooted instincts as we know them. And yet, this is so because psyche moves toward totality and does not care at all for the sensibilities of the conscious personality. Like, how difficult in the West is it for us to even consider this idea that, that psyche is moving against our own desire? We don't even have an idea of psyche outside of our own desire. And so in Eastern thought, and actually for most of the world for 2,000 years, 
or you know longer the ego is thought to be in the bottom in the root chakra but we put it up in the head and so we avoid the body we avoid the emotions we avoid what's below it but it's actually the route to higher consciousness and that's why it goes away from safety and away from our you know instinctual idea about it so Let's get into the end here. According to Barbara Hanna, who is present for Young's psychological lectures on Kundalini, she said, because the East has been at it for so long, they have many more symbols than we do, and it's hard to relate to them. Young delivering a psychological commentary helped get everyone at the lectures reoriented to the material and thus out of confusion. I said, of course, confusion is the best case scenario for the Western mind encountering foreign ideas. See, because if we're confused, there's at least the impulse and opportunity to remain humble and open. More dangerous is the belief that one is not confused, that they do know where they are when in fact they do not. For it is here that all manner of neuroses emerge and take hold of the conscious ego. And the almost 100 years since Jung began to publicly write about Eastern ideas, they've no doubt grown in popularity. The growing embrace should be understood alongside of the fact that the basic predisposition of the Western mind has not changed, and if anything, has grown more entrenched in the basic belief in the power and dominance of conscious will. This is particularly destructive because without trying to view psyche in its totality, as Jung suggests, the will of the individual is often strengthened against the unconscious, thereby creating a worse reversal in the future. Analytical psychology not only is, can be a bridge to the symbolism of the East, but further provides a path for the Western person to understand their own system of belief by helping them come to terms with the limits of their own perceptual lens. Man, I know that was a lot and perhaps confusing, and we've been at it for a while here. But I wanted to put this out because, as I said, these ideas, Eastern ideas, are so popular and they're... And they're so rich, and they have such dynamic God images that are really helpful to relate to. And at the same time, we have to understand or have a better understanding of the psychological differences so that we're not poisoned by them, so we don't become inflated, so that we, that we remain humble and stay in right relationship with our own soul. Because as I was saying at the end, if we don't do that, and then what happens is that you identify with these unconscious symbols, you become inflated, and you've strengthened yourself against your soul, against the unconscious. And then the neuroses gets worse, not better. And so just something to consider. And I also want to say, you know, I have um, a decent number of clients who've been reaching out or coming to me who want to understand some of these spiritual ideas better. Um but don't want to sit with a paper like this or with the psychology of Kundalini Yoga lecture series, um, and but really want to work with it in their own lives. So um, I will link up, you know, the show notes to all in the show notes. I'll link up, you know, all the content that I've talked about today, the books that I've discussed. Um, I will put this paper on my website so you can read it if you want, print it out, sit with it, think about it. Um, and then also, I would say if you're interested in working with some of these ideas coming from a Western background. Um, you can also inquire about like one-on-one -on -one coaching and spiritual guidance and we can talk about that too because um, obviously it's something that I've dedicated my life to doing all right well I hope this was helpful for you guys chat later bye